Welcome you back. Um, greetings from Devonport Baptist Church. Um, um, we met this morning, had a lot of fun, worshipped Jesus in a weird way. We didn't do it in our normal way, um, but we had fun doing it. And uh, yeah, it's good to be here this evening with you. Um, the passage I've been given is John 5, 1 to 15. Um, and it says this. Afterwards, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the Sheep Gate, was the Pool of Bethsaida, with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said. For I have no one to put me in the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. (coughs) Told him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up the sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. That law, the law doesn't allow you to carry your sleeping mat. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing, they demanded. And the, but the man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well. <coughs> or something worse will happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that that it was Jesus who had healed him. (coughs) Excuse me, I had this cough for about two weeks, and it's driving me and my wife mental. Um, So you'll just have to um, excuse my coughing. I I wrote this sermon on the day that Terry Jones died. Uh, In my teens... I discovered Monty Python, and I watched as much as I could. And one of my favourite films was The Life of Brian. And there's a great scene in The Life of Brian where Brian encounters an ex-leper. The leper had been healed by Jesus, and he literally had no idea what he would now do with his life. Uh, He had only known the life of a beggar. And um, although there's a lot of issues with that story... There's something similar here going on. Jesus encounters this man by the waters. He, he meets a man who had lived by this water edge of this pool for 38 years, just waiting for healing. A lifetime in which he'd hoped that, that this, the waters would bubble up and he would be the one to get in the water. But Jesus, when he meets him, asks him a question. Do you want to get well? Jesus was not going to force anything on this man. He was not going to give him something that he didn't want. Why had he been there for 38 years and not managed to make the water? Surely, if he'd wanted to get well, he'd have got in there somehow. But something had already stopped him. Was he prepared for life after healing? You mean, I read quite a lot of you know, lottery stories where people win the lottery, but actually, life doesn't seem better for them. In fact, it seems to get 
decidedly worse. You hear of families splitting up, um, suicides, divorce. The, uh, the dream... The dream can become a disastrous reality for people. So Jesus has to check this man's motivation, has to ask the question, do you want to get well? It seems that he simply had not been able to get into the pool, but maybe Jesus is asking the question, do you really want to get well? Do you want to get into the pool? See, now the pool of Bethsaida was a well-known place of healing. It has been proven archaeologically to have been exactly where the Bible describes it. And before the Jews claimed it, it was dedicated to the god Asclepius. I can't even pronounce that. And periodically... The waters would bubble up, and one of the many sick people would enter the water and hope to be healed. So, no wonder there were so many people who were ready and willing to get into the pool. And this man had spent his life waiting for the moment when the water would bubble up and he would get in. He'd been waiting there for 38 years. That's a lifetime, isn't it? Just waiting by the poolside, hoping. But Jesus would do something that the water bubbling up could not do or did not do. It enabled, he enabled this man to be healed. So he asked him the question, do you want to be healed? And the man says, yes. And so Jesus says, yes, you can be healed. I know you've been looking at, you're looking through the seven signs in John. The seven signs correlate with seven I am statements. Uh, And the creation story, as you may know, the creation story in Genesis talks about seven days of the week. And seven was seen as the perfect number, which is why in Revelation 666 is a bad number because it's one off 777. So we look at seven days in the week as part of the old creation. Even now we have seven days in our week. But Jesus was doing something new. Starting the process of recreation. So John theologically symbolises those seven I am statements, seven signs. unlike the first two signs in John, John doesn't flag this one up. You're now in John, you're supposed to recognise that this is one of the seven signs. The final sign is, of course, the healing of Lazarus. But there is actually an eighth sign. Did you know that? There's an eighth sign in John. And that is the resurrection. And that is because the resurrection is the first sign in a new week. The resurrection is the beginning of the new creation of the world. 
So this is one of those first seven signs. It tells us, though, that the old creation, the old way of living, the old way of being is coming to an end. And a new week is beginning. And so this man is healed. And Jesus tells him to take his mat and walk. But the story has a problem, an obvious problem. (coughs) The healing happens on a Sabbath. And there were certain things you couldn't do on the Sabbath, and carrying your mat was one of them. So when Jesus says, carry your mat and walk, I wonder if this isn't just some casual statement that Jesus is saying. I wonder if he's specifically, very deliberately saying, do something that is controversial. Because Jesus was doing something new. He was starting a new story, not burdened by the rules of the old story, the old way of doing things, the old religious ideas. But Jesus was taking the message out to the Jews. And while salvation was from the Jews, it was not just for the Jews. And Jesus is taking it out from the Jewish world and expanding it. And out into the... Salvation. Who, of course, was Jewish. Um, Anyway, so, salvation was from Jesus, yes. But it's from the Jewish world. It comes from the Jewish world and goes out and goes into the world of the Gentiles, the wider world. And the old religious laws, like Sabbath, they were starting to get in the way of people experiencing Jesus. And they had to go. Because Jesus was doing something new, and it was going to be open to all, to everybody. So we meet a group of people here, the Judeans. And the Judeans were more interested in religion. The Judeans were southern Jews, and their question seemed to be, who is this Jesus? What authority does he have to do these things? And why was he encouraging someone to break the law? They seemed utterly indifferent to the fact that the man had been healed. They seemed utterly indifferent to the fact that he had suddenly had a life-changing event. They were more interested in religious orthodoxy. Their religious life was more important to them than the setting free of this man from the pain and indignation that he'd been facing. The letter of the law was more important to them than the spirit of the law. The Sabbath was not, a, not in place to prevent people from having their lives changed. But these men were not in celebratory mood. Despite having something amazing just happened right in front of them, they put the law as more important than the healing that they had seen. For them, the law had become the end in itself. They didn't seem to understand that law was given to the Jews as a sign of their chosenness, as a blessing. 
not as a curse to limit the way people did things. The healing should have made them ask questions about who Jesus was. And in a sense, how was he able to do these things? But instead, instead of asking questions about who Jesus was, they started asking questions about why he was doing things, what authority he had to do these things. Too often we want people to behave rightly before they can believe. We want them to fit in with us, to like the bits of church that we like. But often the trappings of religion prevent people from coming to know Jesus. We put barriers in front of people. To join our club, you need to look like us and act like us. But there's something else that goes on here towards the end of the story. Jesus meets this man again, and he gives him a warning, doesn't he? To turn from his sin. <coughs> when asked by the Judeans, you know, who, who healed you? He had no idea who Jesus was. He just said, this guy healed me. And Jesus gives this man a warning. I often question myself. One of the questions I often ask is, why doesn't God just heal people? And maybe if God just went around healing people, more people would come to know Jesus. And this story seems to be a warning, because we can quickly become complacent. Even though he'd been healed, the man had not repented. He had, he was just going to carry on his life as he always had done. He hadn't seemed to, there's something, Jesus seems to have been convinced the man hadn't learned from the experience. When the man was a cripple, he could not enter the temple because he would be seen as unclean. But now here he was in the temple... He had been healed. He was allowed to enter the temple. And that may have meant that he was outwardly clean. But Jesus is not interested in our outward appearance. Jesus is always interested in our heart response. I see that sometimes with Christians, new Christians. They can be sold out for God. But as time goes by... That first love, that craziness of going to know Jesus fades. And soon they can become ambivalent to what God has done in their lives. Which is why I believe as a church, we need to shift our our emphasis from conversion to discipleship. Trying to convert people, moving on to discipling people. And the problem with discipling is this. It takes time. It's hard work. And it means we carry on walking with people before, during, and after that conversion. Jesus needs a follow-up appointment with this guy because he'd been given this second chance and Jesus' fear was that he would blow it. Jesus' fear that he may end up worse than he was before, that he might end up not just back where he started, but in an even worse place. So Jesus' emphasis is that something needs to happen. But more than just healing, his life needed to turn around. It needed to change. He needed to repent. See, the thing is, (coughs) we all like the easy route in our lives. 
We want the Spirit of God to move in revival so that we don't have to do anything. So we don't have to grow the church ourselves. We want that Christian movie or that listening to that album by Kanye West or Stormzy that people will just listen to it and fall on their knees. We want people to wander into church on a Christmas day or Easter and hear the gospel and just go, yes, that's it. We want people to be miraculously healed so that we can prove God. Our problem is those shortcuts don't work. The Judeans thought that by keeping the law, everything would be okay. But the law had become their religion. It become shackles. It had enslaved them. And we can turn many things of church into lifeless religious activity. There is a warning for us here. We need to constantly be aware of our motivations. We often need to get into the stuck, into the hard and slow work of discipling people. That hard work takes time. It involves putting aside our religious ideals and engaging people who we may normally struggle with or may let us down. I have a friend, I'm going to call him James, his name isn't James. And one night me and him were sharing a bottle of wine. It's about one o'clock in the morning. Yeah, we'd, we'd, we'd gone through probably quite a lot of wine. And we were having a chat. And he told me a story. He told me why he liked me, despite me being a Christian. He said when he was younger, he was involved in a church youth group. And every year, at the end of the year, there was a barbecue. Uh, and and the, the, the youth team saw that as their reaping event. That moment when people would become Christians. This was always, that was the way it was always going to be. And he went along to this barbecue, just wanted to have a barbecue. And the assistant youth worker walked up to him and said, Hey James, are you going to become a Christian this year? And James said, no. And that youth worker walked away. The senior youth worker approached him. James, are you become a Christian this year? He said, no. And he also walked away. He said, the reason he liked me is that he knew I would never walk away. That was 15 years ago. James is still not a Christian. But I'm proud that James is still my friend. The hard, slow work of discipleship. Why do we not see people come to know Jesus? I think getting to know Jesus is the greatest thing that can happen to any individual. But the problem is, we too often let our religion get in the way. We often think that people outside the church like what we like. Think about it. What, what do you like about church? What do you think is good about church? Um... <coughs> be honest with you, if I, I, I haven't always been a Christian, but if someone said to me when I was not a Christian, hey Michael, come to an event where there's 40 minutes of worship and then a 25 minute sermon, I'd say, oh thank you, I've got better things to do with my Sunday evening. What we do here, we enjoy, but it's a world away from what people outside church are looking for. And yet, too often people say to me, if we could only invite people to church, they might get it and it might make a difference. 
and doesn't always work. Because people aren't interested in coming to an event. People want to know, want to see Jesus in you. They want to see Jesus in what you do, in how you live your life, in integrity and honesty and truthfulness. They want to see it when they say no to you, that you still love them and care for them and want to be their friend. That is the hard and slow work of discipleship. And that means engaging people with not where where you want them to be, but where they are, where they're at. Jesus didn't go to the temple to find this crippled man at first, did he? He went to the well. He went to the place, the poolside, where the outcasts were, where the people that no one else was interested in were, where the cripples were. And Jesus found that man there. The unclean, the forgotten, and the broken. That is the hard and slow work of discipleship. It's finding people where they're at, not where we think they should be. My final question to you is, where are you engaging in the slow and hard work of discipleship? Can we pray? Did I want to pray for the guy who was here who... um, walked out. Lord, we don't know what's going on in his life and his world, but Lord, we just pray that you will go with him in whatever he does, and you'll bless him and look after him. Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, that we have found because we know you, and help us to share that gift with people through that hard and slow work of discipleship. In your holy name, amen.